why would somebody who's so open and honest about all those things, who does something that you would be embarrassed about and then apologize for it, why would you assume that they're telling a lie? One of the UK's most preeminent, respected and handsome forensic psychiatrists is back on the show. It's Dr. Shaham Das, everyone. Dr. Shaham has fast become a friend of the show. You know what's funny? I recently was able to check how much of my episodes you guys consume, as in like what percentage of the episode you listen to in each episode. And the previous ones with Dr. Shaham had exceedingly high rates. You were listening to like above 90% on average, which is very high when you consider tens of thousands of people. So you obviously really like the guy. I do too. I can understand why you like him. He's a super eloquent and fun forensic psychiatrist who deals with all sorts of grisly and gruesome murderers and criminals. He's a top bloke, someone whose company I've been fortunate enough to enjoy in real life. And so I mean it when I say go check out his YouTube channel, A Psych for Sore Minds. There he speaks about some of his most out there and scary cases while also looking into and speculating about the cases of the day, true crime and all sorts of other things. He also has a quite brilliant book out called In Two Minds, Stories of Murder, Justice and Recovery from a Forensic Psychiatrist. So if you're a reader and you like true crime, get hold of that now. Today we natter on a bit at the beginning before Dr. Shahom wonders whether President Joe Biden might, or might not, have dementia. That leads me on to some questions about other presidents and world leaders and their likelihood of being psychopaths. We chat psychopathy for a while before talking about Will Smith's apology for slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars and then discussing the alleged sex-related crimes of British DJ Tim Westwood. There's a lot of ground to cover and I loved getting a professional opinion on some of the news of the day. Coming up on the show are Daniela Mestjanek Young, who grew up in the Children of God cult, famous for its former member Joaquin Phoenix, Danielle Grayman, who is suing my former university, Leeds Uni, for failing her paper because it wasn't in line with the professor's anti-Israel politics, and Andrew Doyle on his new book, The New Puritans, How the Religion of Social Justice Captured the World. But now you're on the edge of forensic psychiatry, dementia, Joe Biden and Will Smith with my pal, Dr. Shaham Das. So, Shaham, I last saw you at CrimeCon. Uh, did you enjoy having lunch with me and Sean? Yeah, absolutely. I did. It was uh, good fun. I think that's the, 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 most, the most fun bit of CrimeCon is the, is the uh, socialising, i.e. drinking. Yeah, it was my first time, but I heard about it because I only got there on a the Sunday. There'd been a big fire the night before um, and you had all sorts of stories about you getting up to no good the night before. Nah, I think you <laughs> must have mistaken me for someone else. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Then we had lunch with Sean. Sean paid for it all. That was nice, wasn't it? Yeah, that was very kind of him. Yeah, yeah. Shout out Sean Atwood. <laughs> Shout out to Sean Atwood, the you know good top guy. Um, and yeah, and also since we last spoke, since then, you were on ITV. You've been on TV channels and stuff. How was that? Did they put makeup on you and all that? <laughs> they did put makeup on me, but they I was in the makeup chair for less than a minute, I would say. And there were some um more mature models, I think is the right way of saying it, who were who were there for a different segment. They were showing off the dresses and they were in the in the seats for like, you know, half an hour, forty five minutes each. So I felt a little bit cheated. Uh but yeah, it was good fun. It was good fun. I enjoyed it. It was I was only on for a few minutes and I got asked some pretty big questions, um, which were fine. Like I'm I'm happy 
talk about my work and stuff. You know, I'm narcissistic enough to talk about myself for ages, <laughs> but I was very aware that I knew that I was only on for like, you know, eight, nine minutes. And Dermot was asking me questions like, what drives a killer? And I'm just like, how can I possibly summarize that in like a two minute answer? Oh man, were you sweating? I wasn't sweating. I was trying, I, I, I was a little bit nervous before I went on, but I'm very aware that you know, it's a very short opportunity and I can't be a bitch about it. I have to kind of overcome it and be as confident and as good as I can be if I want to go on again. Yeah, you looked great, man. And I, I mean, the only TV, like, live TV I've done is in Argentina. And I wondered if that was the only place where they like, insist you put makeup on. But I think they just do it to everyone. They're just putting loads of bronzer on me. I never looked so good. And then on the TV, you look good. I mean, you look very handsome. You had your lovely physique and everything. But uh, <laughs> do you think you'll be called back there? Actually, I might be going on on Monday. So <sighs> I... I, I, I what I've come to learn, not from just this morning, but in general, is that a lot of there's a lot of sort of enthusiasm about having me on, but it doesn't always translate to me actually being on. So, you know, there's been a couple of times where I've been bumped at the last minute. So I don't want to count my chickens, but I might be going on Monday, Monday morning. Yeah. Is it, I, do you think that reflects sort of a, a, a wider appetite for true crime stuff? They want like forensic psychiatrists. They want to talk to you guys. If I'm being perfectly honest, I think it's a little bit random. I think that they're constantly bombarded with ideas. Uh, so it's not as if they came... So, well, actually, that's not strictly true. They, the very the first time I went on was because they read uh, a piece that I was in in the Metro. But I think... I don't think that... I think they'll go with whatever turns up in their inbox and whoever's sort of persistent enough to to not take no for an answer, which is what I'm trying to do, uh, rather than a calculated kind of look at exactly what needs to be talked about, just because there's so many things they can talk about. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, look, it was really interesting. For those who don't know, who haven't heard, you've obviously been on this show quite a few times. Could you just give us a brief overview of uh, what it is you do exactly? Absolutely. So I am a forensic psychiatrist. So a psychiatrist is a medical doctor who looks after people who have a whole range of mental illnesses. Forensic psychiatrist such as myself work specifically with offenders so people that have committed severe violence anything from arson to stabbing to attempted murder to murder uh, so I genuinely assess people in courts and in prisons and psychiatric units and also I act as an expert witness so I give evidence in criminal trials that's pretty cool so it's funny because I just imagine you just always in this little box where I see you on your YouTube channel when we're talking but when we're not talking and you're having meetings and doing things are you meeting up with quite dangerous scary people you know what Oddly, since lockdown, my work pattern has changed. Uh, I, I was going to say for the better. Certainly, it's become more convenient for me because it's a lot easier now to do video call assessments. And that's better for me in some ways because going to prison is an absolute ball ache. Just like even just getting to prison in itself, driving across London is difficult. But actually getting into prison, like you show your ID, you wait in a massive queue, you're there with all the family visitors. It can literally take hours and hours to get in. So in that way, it's made my life easier. But occasionally I come across assessments where the it would be easier to be sat in a visiting room with a prisoner because there's something not quite right but it's not over it's not obvious so in some ways it makes my job a little bit harder but in in terms of logistics and transport it makes it easier so nowadays you are just you're sort of one-on-one -on -one with people who and you're assessing whether they're sort of what is it violent criminals or if they're insane or, or whatever yeah. So usually it's nothing to do with actually solving the crime in any way, which I think is a, a common misconception. So they've already been found. Well, I was about to say they've not been found guilty. They've already been charged. So they're is during their criminal trial. But my 
a role is to decide, do they have a mental illness? Yes or no. If they do, did they have symptoms at the time of their offence? And that's not obviously just taking their word for it. It's also looking at all the evidence, you know, witness statements, CCTV footage, piecing it all together. If they did have symptoms, does it affect their criminal culpability? That's probably the most important part of my role. And if it doesn't, which is the case in the vast majority of scenarios, then my role ends there and they end up going to prison. If it did affect their culpability, do they have a psychiatric defense like not guilty by reason of insanity? And if so, should they go to hospital or prison? So it's basically all of those decisions. Does like, is a mental illness, I presume a lot of them are on a spectrum. Like, do, do we all have sort of you know, maybe some sort of obsession, for example, obsessive behavior or whatever. And then there's a sort of level where it becomes, okay, this is now a mental illness. Or is it just black and white? This person's mental illness and these people don't. So I think it's absolutely the former. It's definitely a spectrum. I think if I'm being sort of pedantic, everybody has mental health issues and everyone has at times some symptoms that can be symptoms of mental illness, like anxiety, low mood, or, or very natural human experiences. I think for me, when it crosses over to the threshold of being a mental illness is when it affects your functioning. So somebody that has low mood or social anxiety, but still is able to hold down a job, some sort of resemblance of a social life, doesn't, in my view, have a mental illness. But when it's crippling, when there are other factors like thoughts of self-harm or even, you know, acts of self-harm, like taking overdoses, then that's a whole different, that pushes you into the realm of crossing the threshold for a diagnosis. And then separate to that, not everyone who has a diagnosis is necessarily not criminally responsible for their actions. So that is the gray area. That's my area of specialty is not just diagnosing because that's relatively straightforward. It's making that decision about whether or not they're criminally culpable. That's the most important bit. And speaking of gray areas, are some mental illnesses dependent on the society that they're in and the time they're in? Because obviously, you know, famously or infamously, uh, homosexuality was for a long time thought to be insanity or mental illness. People seem to be on the fence about gender dysphoria and things like that sometimes. You know, how much does it depend on what the society around you thinks? I th- that's a good question. I think that for for mental illnesses where there is uh, intentionally or unintentionally a degree of uh, morality in it. So uh, those two are prime examples of that where some people, not everybody, but some people will think of them as, you know, wrong, immoral, unnatural, blah, blah, blah. Um, then those, obviously, th- the definition of whether that is a mental illness changes with the moral, the norms of uh, society. But I would argue that things like, you know, severe depression, schizophrenia, uh, it doesn't really matter what's going on around you. Having said that, I'm just going to contradict, contradict myself. I think that in some cultures like having some experiences that we would call schizophrenia. So hearing voices are explained away with like spirituality, you know, back in the day, people who probably had auditory hallucinations and and visual hallucinations were probably seen as witches. So there wouldn't be a mental illness. It would be, you know, uh, like a crime basically. So they can get, they can get literally killed for that. Oh my God. Am I hearing music? I feel like I was hearing music. Sorry. That's, that's um, outside on the street from my end. I don't know where that came from. Not much you can do about it. (laughs) I'm sure that the listeners... It's that thing, when you're listening to a podcast, if somebody explains what the thing is, I think people don't... They're like, oh, well, fair enough. Whereas if they don't, they'll be like, what was that internal music racket happening? You know? The good news, Andrew, is that you're not hearing voices. So I'm not going to section you this time. Not this time. You've gotten away. Speaking of hearing voices, is that what schizophrenia is? You know, obviously there was that film Split. I don't know if you saw that, but that that seems to be not 
that can't be real you know 18 different personalities is it really a different personality in someone no so there's a bit there's quite a few misconceptions within a mental illness and that's definitely one of the big ones so people think that schizophrenia is split personalities completely different uh, disorders split personality disorder is called dissociative identity disorder and some people myself included some psychiatrists even question whether it exists as an entity so i've never seen a credible case i've seen quite a few criminals who pretend that they've had it had that because if you've done some horrific violence it's quite easy to say you know either i was hearing voices number one or number two it was a different it was a different character i don't remember that doctor so that that is what that is schizophrenia is a a tendency to have periods of psychosis and psychosis is when you step out of reality and there's different types of symptoms but by far the two most common are hallucinations so hearing voices and delusions so they're fixed unshakable beliefs there's loads of different types of delusions but the one that i see in offenders or people that commit violence tends to be paranoid delusions so typical delusions that i see are people are following me want to kill me talking about me um you know i, I saw a case recently where it's a man believed falsely that his neighbor was a pedophile and was like sending him messages so preemptively attacked this person so it's like paranoid delusions that they're completely 100 percent invested in and believe are true and that causes them to commit violence and I would say it's in a very, very small proportion of cases, but those are the cases that I see because those are the cases that are on trial where I get called to act as an expert. I had um, Sir Johnny or Johnny Benjamin MBE on the show, and he's someone who has he's got an MBE because he, was, he does a lot of campaigning and things, but he has schizoaffective disorder. Is that sort of what you're talking about? Because I think he, he was hearing a lot of stuff and he, he talked about having psychosis as well. So schizoaffective disorder is is like... It's both a schizophrenia disorder and a mood disorder. It's like the worst of both both worlds. So schizophrenia is everything that I've just described. And a mood disorder can either be unipolar, which is like severe depression, or it can be bipolar, which obviously you, you'd have heard the term. So that's where you go through periods of being manic. So you're really raised in your mood. You're excitable. You're impulsive. You can be agitated. Your thoughts are really speeded up. You're full of energy. Uh, you make sometimes very damaging, impulsive decisions, like spending loads of money, for example, uh, and periods of low mood. So somebody with schizoaffective disorder has all of that combined. So they have massive highs, massive lows, and uh, psychosis as well. What was about? What did the person have who punched you in the side of the head? So he actually had schizoaffective disorder. Yeah, but 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 specifically, uh, he had a type of delusion called a capgrass delusion, which is where he believed that I was somebody from his past in disguise. Oh, did he really think that, or did he just want to hit you? <laughs> well, I. Only one of us has a very punchable face, uh, Mr. Gold, and it's not me. So I'd like, to, I'd like to think that he had. No, I really do think he did, uh, and not not just because he said it, but because it very much fits into other times that he's had very similar symptoms, like way before he met me. In fact, the reason that he was sectioned in the medium secure unit was because he threw. He was in a, when he was completely psychotic. He went into a cafe. He believed that a, a group of random strangers, most of whom were pensioners, who was sort of sitting around having a cup of tea. He genuinely believed that they were undercover police officers who had been arrested for arrested by previously many years ago it was them in disguise so he picked up a table and threw it at them so i guess what i'm trying to say is it's not just his behavior that morning on me it was like a repeated pattern of very similar symptomatology so that's why i think it was genuine and we we i think we both know kerry dane so obviously she was at um crime con with us as well when she was on the show she talked about this guy who stabbed her in the stomach with a, a kebab skewer do you know about that story? Is that would that be a similar similar condition? Uh, I can't remember the specific 
details of why she got stabbed i think I, in fact I've, I've heard her on your show saying that so that's where i've heard it uh, i can't remember whether he had so, so not everybody who has a mental illness who's detained who attacks somebody is necessarily attacking somebody because of that mental illness so it could be that he was delusional and he had a specific idea that he had to for some reason injure or kill kerry that's one possibility another possibility and it happens is that he was somebody who doesn't like being detained and, and sees her as one of the many people that's a barrier from him being freed was frustrated for a number of reasons maybe his leave got stopped maybe he got forced on a medication he didn't want to be on so he's just acting out in aggression so i suppose part of our job is to decide which one of those two it is it's bloody scary when you said that i've got a more punchable face did i tell you the story about when someone punched me <laughs> I was only kidding when I said that, but no, no you no. haven't told me. No, but uh, I wasn't sure on, if you were kidding or if you knew. No, it was just when I was at Leeds. I told people on the podcast, going, "God, I've heard this before five times." But I was walking in Leeds because I was at uni, and obviously I looked a bit posh, I think. And they, there's a big divide, as there is in many cities, like university cities, between like the local people and all the sort of posh Londoners who go up and study there. And this guy came over, and I had this peanut butter and jam or peanut butter and jelly for Americans sandwich that I was eating, and it must have rubbed him up the wrong way. And he came over, and he was like you got asani mate and i was like yeah, yeah i've got what's oh i don't know what asani and i pretended i didn't know what asani meant you know because it's, it's just slang for sandwich and he sort of said give us give us your sani mate so i had to i was like look i'll give you half of it but then i'll have the other half and he, so i sort of put it in half and i gave him half and then he threw it on the floor and he said, I don't, oh, I don't want your fucking pity, mate. I don't need your sane. And I was like, all right, okay. And I started sort of walking quite briskly. And then he just came from the side and just like whacked me in the jaw. Um, and I just kept walking because I thought if I run, he'll chase me. Do you think that was a good idea to just walk? I don't think he had many options really, did you? I mean, yeah, I suppose that was quite reasonable in circumstances. So did he just walk away and leave you alone after that? I think he might have been a drug addict. I'm not sure. And he had some sort of mates sitting down watching him and sort of egging him on a bit. So I suppose that, that, that changes the whole kind of texture of the situation. If he's got people with him, you don't want to be starting shit. But you're like seven foot three. So presumably he had to like jump up to hit you. <laughs> I think he did jump as he hit me. And <laughs> I had it my whole life though, because I mean, I, I don't know if that's as much, you know, a psychiatric thing, but little man syndrome. I've, I've come up again, obviously not all short people such as yourself, Dr. Sean, uh, <laughs> have this have this condition as i'd call it but every now and then as a tall person and any tall people listening will definitely be able to relate to this every now and then you do encounter them and they've just got something to pr- and and you don't i don't end up i got no aggression in me because i was tall already i didn't need to and uh that was horrible yes sure is that a, is that a psychiatric condition i wouldn't say it's a psychiatric condition <laughs> but i would say it's like a a, a character flaw so a person a, a, mm. a flawed personality trait rather than a sort of diagnosable mental illness but i'll tell you a quick story if, if you're interested so i went to, to edinburgh uni uh where posh English people were even more hated I would say probably than Leeds and it was 19 I think it was the year 98 was it the Euros in 98 or was it the World Cup it was the Euros wasn't it that was the World Cup World Cup 98 in France was it World Cup sorry 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 I got it wrong yeah it's the World Cup and I I failed almost all my exams in first year so I had to revise and a bunch of my friends were about to go to a game in a pub an England game in Edinburgh and this is during the summer holidays for you to stay behind and they painted like an English the, the St George's uh, cross on their faces I was meant to join them and the only reason I didn't was because I had this exam the next day and I hadn't revised enough so I stayed in they walked down the street as you can imagine in the middle of Edinburgh during the World Cup with a bunch of guys with their um, you know the English flag painted on their on their faces they got the absolute shit kicked out of them by a bunch of Scottish lads oh, no. uh, yeah for for being like provocatively English I suppose yeah that is provocatively English. I don't think I would do that. 
Yeah, but but it was it was like for a reason. It wasn't that they were just you know they were going to a football match to support England in a pub down the road. Uh, but it's pretty it's pretty bad. Like one of my friends got really seriously kicked in the face, like quite hard, broke his jaw. Oh my god! Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. That's, I'm happy you didn't go. Yeah, yeah. Because how would your your beautiful jaw would not look as <laughs> as beautiful as it does? A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. I've got, we're doing story topping now. It's all story, well, it's not a topping, a story that tops, but because, you know, I lived in Argentina and they have every year, well, basically, right, so I went to play football and I had an England shirt. It's just what I played football in. Obviously, there's a big rivalry between Argentina and England for various reasons, uh, historical reasons. Maradona. Maradona as well, but I'm (laughs) thinking on a more serious level to do with the Falklands. And I, it's like a 10, 15 minute walk to where I played football from my flat or apartment for Americans. And as I was walking, uh, everyone was looking at me a bit funny this particular time. And I was like, what's going on here? And like, people were really, people said something, I didn't quite hear what they said in Spanish. And I went and played football. And when I got there, my mate, who's Argentine, 
he said, you know, it's Falklands Day. It's National Falklands Day or Malvinas. <laughs> Take that fucking shirt off now. You're going to get killed. So I had to, like, afterwards, I had to walk home, like, topless because he was like, honestly, you could get stabbed and killed if you wear that today. Um, and they were all laughing at me. I thought they were joking when I arrived in my England shirt and all that. But that's uh, tribalism, isn't it? What can you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of being punched slightly on the side of the head, where, where do you stand on stuff like sports injuries and brain damage and could, that's, you know, causing dementia, rugby, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of football, the head injuries. Do you think about that stuff much? Um, not really. Only reason being is because when, when we have cases like that, so occasionally we have uh, criminal cases where somebody alleges that they act, acted like really impulsively because they have like frontal lobe damage, then I, I ref- refer them onto a neuropsychiatrist because I'm just, I have seen a few cases, but I'm not an expert in that kind of thing. So I know the basics, but I'm not confident enough to like give evidence in court about that. So it's, it's uh, like a head injury or traumatic brain injuries are technically neurological rather than psychiatric injuries, even though they do have psychiatric symptoms. Because it because it's more of a damage of the nervous system than it is what we call functional, which is where your nervous system isn't physically damaged, but due to chemical imbalances, you have like things like psychosis. They're two slightly different things. Interesting. I've I've got the very very basic understanding, or I think I do, that the frontal lobe is the bit sort of responsible for control and and things like that, and that it doesn't fully develop until you're 25 years old, and that's why people who are at least 25 tend to be less sort of one way or the other they're able to view both sides of things and so if you get an injury there does it make you sort of less able to make mature decisions yeah you've got pretty much most of that right there's a little bit extra than that have you heard of uh, phineas gage no. Yeah, so he's quite a. It's, it's a long time ago, I think, in the 1800s, but it's just like kind of one of those cases that you'll see in in mental health or psychology textbooks. So this was a really infamous case. It's, it's like when frontal lobe syndrome was discovered. So there's a man called Phineas Gage. He was like a very normal, boring person, and he was working on the railroad somewhere in in rural America, I think. And basically, like a, a, a section of of rail went through his head and pierced his frontal lobe, and he miraculously survived. But his personality completely changed overnight. So he started. Becoming really aggressive, he's like really rude towards his wife and children. He started swearing. He would like sing really provocatively, and he was quite a shy, timid person before. So that was the first indication that our frontal lobes, some some of the stuff you said, so decision making, but probably more relevant than that is your personality. So it cha- it, people with frontal lobe syndrome, so if, uh, if they have a very specific stroke that uh, that affects the frontal lobe, they can become very very rude, and it also affects your effect, uh, executive functioning. So it's your ability to to plan a few steps ahead. So somebody with severe frontal lobe syndrome can either have a really aggressive personality or their personality can seem normal, but they really struggle with processing tasks. So if you ask them to make a cup of tea, they get overwhelmed because they can't figure out what you have to do. When do you fill the kettle? When do you put the tea bag in? When do you get the milk out of the fridge? They struggle with that. So that's another symptom. What about those people who wake up saying that they speak like Chinese now? Yeah, I've heard that happen. And so I believe it to be true, but I honestly have no idea how or why that can happen. No idea. I'm a bit sceptical. Because I, th- I think sometimes they like wake up with a French accent and what's actually happening is it's just their accent's gone a bit off because of the damage. It's not gone French, you know? <laughs> it's just gone damaged, but I don't know. And, and speaking of that stuff, so what you've just described sounds a little bit like some of the symptoms of dementia and things like that. Um, you know, do you think of some elderly people who start being very rude? They stop uh, maybe thinking about who's in the room when they say things. Is that... 
is that part of the brain being damaged in dementia? Yeah. So the thing about dementia is it's kind of a catch-all phrase that, that describes different types of dementia. A lot of people conflate it with Alzheimer's only because Alzheimer's is the most common. So three quarters of all dementia is Alzheimer's, but a quarter is many other things. So generally speaking with dementia, it is obviously memory loss. That's probably the most kind of overt and uh, renowned symptom. So you have memory loss more of short-term than long-term memories. But as you say, it also changes your personality. So it can be anything from being sort of very vacuous or not caring, like becoming completely callous. You don't care about people. You don't care about what's happening around you. Uh, or it can make you aggressive. So if you were to have, um, again, a, 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 a what's it called a dementia caused by strokes, if you have like a a dementia that's the that's like caused by a, a number of mini strokes if it affects your frontal lobe then it can make you really aggressive and callous just like Phineas Gage yeah interesting because I, I thought for a long time oh you know now that their uh you know their sort of control is impaired they're just being the real them but what you're saying is it's not the real them or the them that you knew before dementia. It's that their personality is fundamentally changing. Yeah, yeah. So I think exactly that. I think there are some older people who don't have dementia but just don't give a fuck anymore because <laughs> <laughs> they've got nothing to prove to anybody who just sure. kind of act a bit more callously. But I don't think that's like a dementia. I think that's just them sort of letting go of of having to act in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, David Badil, the comedian who's, who's been on this podcast, he's got loads of stories. I think he did an entire show about his dad and the kinds of things he would come out with just in front of loads of people. It would just be, you know, the awful things about uh, the female genitalia of the person in the room next to him and stuff like that. So I imagine that would be... And so what, And so Alzheimer's is most people with dementia. And what are the other kinds then? So there's those that are caused by mini strokes. You can have temporal lobe dementia, which is like associated with uh, epilepsy. So it's, again, it's a very specific part. Uh, you can have really rare uh, kind of causes. So like brain tumors can cause dementia. Uh, you can have quite reversible dementia. So just having massive lacks of certain vitamins can also cause it. And the good news about that is it's easily reversible. So if you figure that somebody's got a, a chronically low vitamin D or magnesium level, you can just give them those things and dementia kind of reverses almost immediately. And people say to sort of stave off dementia. I don't know how accurate this stuff is, but they say, oh, learn languages or play chess. And is it a case of keeping your brain active? I think that does help. It does help. But I think the impact is fairly minimal to be honest with you and some forms of dementia can be sort of so devastating so quick that overall it, it, it's not preventing it happening it's probably delaying it by a few months so when, when you talk about dementia the one thing that it kind of reminds me of because i've made a video about him quite recently is joe biden so there's a lot of people who uh, who are claiming that joe biden has dementia um so my thoughts on that well I think a lot of people take some of his clips out of context. So there's definitely a lot of clips on the internet which show him really struggling for words. And, and I think he does struggle for words at times. Uh, but I think that's a combination of things. I think it is probably him having a natural stutter. So he really, he actually accidentally gets words the wrong way around uh, by accident. So I think there's a clip that I saw recently where he said some, he meant to say, uh, the horror of the of the Holocaust, but he accidentally said the honour of the Holocaust. But he'd used the word honour in a previous sentence. 
So my point is, is I think it's a stretch to say that's dementia. I think that's just somebody just struggling with their words. Plus the dude's almost 80. So I think he's got a natural degree of his memory just deteriorating over time. What I think is interesting and something that I called out in my video is there's a few people. In fact, I think um, the Aust Australian ne uh, news network, I can't remember what it's called, but one of the networks was showing pictures of him seemingly shaking hands with an imaginary person. I don't know if you've seen this. And he's, he's done this on two or three occasions. And they are suggesting that he's so confused that he really thinks there's a person standing there and he's shaking hands with an imaginary visual hallucinations. I think that's complete bullshit. I don't think that's true at all. Having looked at those clips, I think he, he does look a bit sort of perplexed and a bit disorientated, but I think he's literally turning around after after he's finished a speech and he's asking for direction. So I'm just getting in view. He's, he's kind of going like that. He's not shaking hands with somebody that's not there in my view. And the other thing I would say is that if somebody has any kind of cognitive decline, whether it's a psychosis or a dementia, they're so far gone that they literally think there's somebody in front of them they're shaking hands with, then their level of functioning would be catastrophically low. You know, he would need 24-hour support. He would need home help. He would probably need help getting in and out of the bathroom, for example. So that to me doesn't, fit with the level of functioning of somebody who is uh, being president. So I'm not saying that he doesn't have memory problems. He probably does, but I don't think it's dementia for those reasons. To, to what extent, I mean, you talk about natural depreciation of memory with age. Is that the same as dementia or is dementia a totally different like disease that's separate from that? So it's definitely the latter. Dementia is a separate disease. So it's not, it's not just memory. It's like very severe memory loss, plus all of those things. So plus a loss of functioning, plus a loss of personality. So if you have a little bit of memory loss when you get older, but you don't have that much of a change in your functioning and your personality is pretty much intact, then by definition, it's not dementia. Are we getting any closer to sort of solving that over the years? What, Joe Biden's case, you mean? Oh, de dementia, yeah. Oh, dementia. Uh, I mean, there are drugs that you can use, but they don't reverse dementia. They just slow it down. Every once in a while, you hear these breakthroughs, uh, apparent scientific breakthroughs that come out, but none of them have been kind of sustained in the long term. The, the Biden stuff, like I don't agree with a lot of his policy. I don't really like him. I don't find him likable at all. I didn't like Trump either. Um, but I do find that the sort of the ad hominem attacks about the age stuff. It was even Have I Got News For You. It was all these jokes about his age. I find it so tired and boring, isn't it? What a rubbish attack. Yeah, I think if you're going to attack somebody, attack them for decent reasons, because, you know, if he's president and his policy doesn't make sense, then that's a good reason. I mean, he's all, everyone knows he's old, you know, uh, he got voted in almost approaching 80. So you can't, you can't vote for him as your president and then criticize him for being old. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't get it. I, there's a lot of these people who I don't really like, like, I don't like the policies of uh, Bernie Sanders or whatever, but I think he seems like a nice enough fella. I don't know. Would, do you think as a, from a, a sort of clinical position, would you say that it's, it's, dangerous at all to have a world leader who's in his 80s or or you know if one did have dementia for example that presumably would be quite dangerous yeah absolutely if he crossed the threshold to dementia and it's usually very gradual uh, the occasion uh, the exception is when it when it forms from strokes where it can be like a stepwise decline so it's not a slow gradual decline it's like literally somebody's normal normal then the next day they're worse then the next day they're worse so if that was to happen absolutely i think it'd be very dangerous but i assume unless there's a massive conspiracy going on that, that we don't know about i assume there'll be you know people around him that would recognize that you know the kamala harris would would step in when she thought that was an issue she wouldn't you know people wouldn't let that continue there's no there's no logical reason in my view for, for them to continue that because it's not as if the whole party loses power it just means that he'd be replaced by the vice president right there's rumors that putin's pretty ill as well that'd be a good video for you to do yeah maybe if i can get him on as a guest <laughs> he'd be up for it i reckon um but 
do you look at other world leaders? And again, I, I've, I've been accused of bias before. And I do want to look at both sides. Obviously, Biden is the lefty one. Uh, you know, Trump before that, people called him a psychopath. And I think all world leaders, Trudeau, you know, all of them might might be psychopathic in some way. What do you think? I think if you if you're proposing that they they're a clinical psychopath, then I would say that there's probably an overrepresentation of, of world leaders that are psychopaths in the same way as there's an overrepresentation of CEOs that are psychopaths because anybody who has that drive and motivation to get to the top of a hierarchy, whether it be a corporate one or a political one, and crucially is willing to stab anybody in the back and has any kind of degree of empathy for colleagues, friends, peers, they're, they're all psychopathic. But I think the vast majority of, of leaders that you're talking about probably have some of the traits of a psychopath, but they're not clinical psychopaths. So like any diagnosis, to be a clinical psychopath, you have to have a number of traits that add up once you get to a pa- past a certain point. I'd say your average world leader probably is fairly narcissistic. They probably are quite charming. They might be, some of them, not all of them by any means, can be quite manipulative, especially ones like, you know, Putin who have this um, sort of... Um, What's the word? Machiavellian. Machiavellian dictator. Di- dictator. That's what I'm trying to look at. When they've got this dictatorial, that's the word, dictatorial kind of view, then they probably do have a lack of empathy for a lot of people. So I think they have traits of being a psychopath, but that doesn't necessarily make, make them all psychopaths. So to put it into context, less than 1% of the world's population are psychopaths. It's like 0.6%. That means each person that you meet is 99% not a psychopath. No, it means that 99% <laughs> of people that you meet are not psychopaths. Doesn't that mean the same thing, though? That means that one person that you meet, there's a 99% chance that they're not a psychopath. Yeah, 99% chance, but that's not what you said. You said that 99% they're not, of, of them is not a psychopath. I'm talking to a psychiatrist. I can see, <laughs> I can see it. You, you're good at this. Right, let's move on to things like that you've been covering at the moment, which are Tim Westwood and R. Kelly. Tell me, I mean, everyone knows who R. Kelly is, I think. He's sung I Believe I Can Fly and some other stuff with Jay-Z. Uh, Tim Westwood, who's Tim Westwood? So the Tim Westwood's, my, my Tim Westwood, Westwood episode actually got taken down by him for defamation. So you can no never find that on the channel. So I hope Did I'm he not, get in touch? Uh, no, he didn't uh, personally, but YouTube sent me like a defamation email. So, uh, so I hope that you don't suffer the same fate if we talk about him. Okay, allegedly. <laughs> yeah. So allegedly, every, everyone will know this in the UK at least. It's it's very big news. So allegedly, a number of women have come out who have said that he has um, sexually assaulted them, and remarkably, they. This is all from a long time ago, from many years ago. Some some of them decades ago. They, as far as we know, don't know each other. So as as far as anybody knows, they've not had contact with each other. But their allegations are very very similar. So they all have to be young black females who are trying to make it in the music business and who is he tim westwood so tim westwood is a or was a really famous uh, dj he was on radio one he's kind of he was the gatekeeper of hip-hop so he was one of the people that brought hip-hop to the uk so when uh, before like obviously hip-hop is a global phenomenon right now but back in i'd say the late 90s as in fact no earlier than that so i'd say throughout all of the 90s particularly in the early 2000s when people were becoming huge you mentioned jay-z all these rappers were becoming absolutely huge he was the one that brought them over as guests he would play them on the radio show when no other dj was doing that back then and he was also the gatekeeper so what i mean by that was that if any british acts for example wanted to make it there was no youtube there was no you know platforms where you can release your own music you basically had to go through westwood it was very almost impossible to make a name for yourself uh outside of like his his seal of approval so what allegedly happened was that he abused his position of power by sort of lying 
lying to and enticing these young girls by suggesting that he could help them with auditions and, you know, get them into bands and get them seen by all these famous producers that he was associated with. And he would pick them up in his car. It was a lot of the stories, not all of them, but a lot of them are very similar in that he, he got, they got picked up in the same car by the same driver. He was in the back and he would either pounce on them in the car or he would invite them to his flat, which confused them because he didn't say that they were going there necessarily. And then he very quickly would sort of pounce on them and, and take advantage of them sexually allegedly so what i think is interesting about this case and something that is rings true to a lot of these cases including r kelly is that there's a clear abuse of power so it's people who are in this position of authority who pick on vulnerable young naive inexperienced women and in tim westwood's case particularly black women who arguably would be less who'd be more victimized because they're less believed by the authorities and by the press of, of being victims i suppose the thing that kind of makes him different i think to people like for example r kelly is that usually perpetrators groom their victims so they spend time uh breaking down their defenses and and making them kind of used to their presence and sometimes that involves just spending time with them. Sometimes it's non-sexual touching that turns into sexual touching. So it kind of, it kind of inures them to their contact and their presence. But Tim Westwood bypassed all of that, it seems, by these allegations. He literally just sort of jumped on them. And I think part of the problem, part of the reason that this didn't come out at the time was that a lot of the victims felt really scared. They didn't think that they'd believe, be believed. They thought that they'd be judged. They thought they'd be like, as well as him being the gatekeeper, he would also be the person that could like, blackball them from the world of you know um of of hip-hop and music so i think it's all of these factors combined this is like a bit more harvey weinstein like i suppose absolutely yeah so uh, what's happening now with him and and also what do, do you get then people obviously i remember so there's quite a lot of celebrities i'm thinking of david duchovny now the x-files molder who come out and say that they're addicted to sex and things like that do you take those things seriously it's like oh well that was a mental illness so i'm absolved of blame in any way Sex addiction is is quite contentious. I think you could you could argue that somebody can be. I think yeah. I think you could argue that somebody could be addicted to sex in the same way that they can they can have some of the features that makes them addicted to drugs. So they might not have the physiological withdrawal, but they can certainly have like the constant rumin, ruminations. Uh, they can really struggle with abstinence and and when they relapse they can sort of search for sexual gratification in the same level as they have previously but crucially vitally in my view that's not an excuse so that doesn't stop them being in control of their actions i think that's the crux of the matter somebody who who is addicted to sex still is in control of their actions so i think one thing that is sometimes perhaps not considered or is ignored is that you have these people like Tiger Woods, a perfect example, who are celebrities. They're good looking, they're young, they're rich, they're famous. So I think that for some people, they have groupies, for want of a better word, they have these opportunities for sex. That because their opportunities are far more than the average person, it's easier for them to to fall into the temptation. That doesn't make it any more right. It just means that I think it's hard for us to understand how hard it is for them to be faithful in those circumstances. That doesn't mean that in, in any way it makes it any less wrong morally. It's just that they have this like constant temptation at their door, which makes it harder for them to resist temptations, I think is my point. And so I wonder now, just going back to what you were saying about, you know, more psychopaths as CEOs and world leaders, presumably as celebrities and people, because they're making it to the top as well. 
Um, and then I guess there's that thing, you know, to what extent is it that these are people who are a bit psychopathic who've gotten into position of powers? And what, what extent is it these are normal people who have gotten into a position of power and, as you say, are have more temptations and they start to act with impunity? You know, nobody does anything and they sort of get, you know, can you become less and less empathetic? Can that happen? Yeah, so I would argue that a true psychopath is always and has always been a psychopath. So you can't really start off with a normal level of empathy, have good morals, and then end up being a psychopath. You can certainly lose your moral compass. Absolutely. We, we see that happen. You know, they say uh, power, absolutely, absolute power, absolutely corrupts, right? But they're not technically psychopaths because to get there in the first place, they haven't been manipulative and backstabbing. That is the tempt. Just like a celebrity can have the temptation of sex thrown at him and her, through him or her, or even drugs thrown at him or her, in the same way somebody in the position of power can have the temptation of corruption thrown at him or her. But I would argue that those people are not psychopaths originally. As your sort of TV profile has grown, Shaham, do you, do you feel <laughs> a little less empathetic or, or did you have no empathy to start with? As we did, we talked about that like when I first met you, didn't we? whether you might be a psychopath <laughs> yeah i would i would i would stab anybody in the back for for another tv opportunity yeah exactly uh but do you know but seriously do you notice a little difference as, it, as things get do you feel like hmm do you ever do you could you go that way I, I, I'll, I'll give you an absolute honest answer to your question and that's this having tried to work in the media world for a relatively short period of time let's say a couple of years but you know trying really hard like i'm pretty much hustling every day on top of you know my work my family blah blah, blah so i'm doing it my own time i think i have learned that the world of media is quite unforgiving and it's quite unhelpful so the vast majority of people not everybody by any means and there's definitely been a few key people that have been very open and very helpful sean atwood absolutely a place there yourself but the vast majority of people are talk a lot of shit so they don't get back to you when they say they will they kind of semi hint or promise uh, having you on various shows or helping you in various ways but they don't come true and honestly without blowing my own trumpet that's that was hard for me to get used to because that's not the way that i think if i say that i'm going to do something i mean it and if i don't mean it then I, I won't offer to do something like that that's just the way that i am and that is not my experience of, of a lot of people in the media from agents to PR people, uh, you know, who will take my money, but do very little for me. So to answer your question, I, I think that I, I don't think I'm lacking empathy, but I'm becoming less patient ab about people. And I, I, I'd like to think that I've not got to a stage where I'm not willing to help other people, but I can see that if my experience of that continues, then if another fresh faced person who's not got through all the bullshit that I've gone through to get somewhere, once a leg up, then I'll be less inclined to help them than I would have been when I very first started, if that makes sense. So I can see how, I don't think that makes any of us psychopaths, but I think I can see how a world of bullshit can, can kind of build and feed on that. And that's honestly how I feel. I know. I, mate, you, what you just said could have come out of my mouth. I mean, it's, it's now been like eight years that I've been trying to get into like traditional media and have just instead focused on YouTube. And again, I don't want to blow Sean's trumpet too much. We talk about Sean Atwood a lot. Obviously, he's this, you know, a mad drug dealer who was a big mafia boss and all this stuff. And he's done a lot of stuff in his life that's probably quite bad. And I've had people every now and then email me saying, how can you work with this guy? And I just say, like, nobody's ever treated me nicer than Sean, um, especially in TV. Uh, like, where, you know, they're awful. They're scum. They're absolute scum. The way they, the way that, and there are some nice ones, as you say, of course there are. There are other nice people. But exactly that, they just, the way they'll just drop you in a second, the way they'll lie to you, the way they just won't, and it, you know, they just do not give a shit. Um, 
and I don't know, I'm trying really hard to, you know, if somebody approached me, I, I want to be like, I don't want to be that person. Because otherwise it's a cycle, isn't it? However, you know, it's hard because you do have that thing of like, well, I had to do it despite everyone being horrible to me. So they should have to do that as well and grow a thicker skin. And, oh man, I'm, I'm happy you say that because, it, yeah, I, they're horrible. Why are they all so horrible? Well, it's what you said, isn't it? They're, they're in that cycle, I suppose, themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I think, to be fair to them, and a bit of damage control, by the way, if any... Um, main channel TV producers are watching this. I just want to deny everything that I've just said. And it was all, it was also Andrew. He's, yeah. uh, he's bullied me. He's pressurized me and saying it. He's, he's a cult. He's a cult. What's wrong? Yeah, I am a cult. If, prove, if, if you're listening to this and you think that, send me and Shaham an email and say, no, I'm not, I'm not like that. And I'm going to, you know, and we'll believe you because we said, didn't we, that some people are, are still really nice and they've kept their ethics. So I, I'll, I'll give you like a couple of specific examples so that people, un, uh, unlike you and me who haven't experienced this, can, can understand what we're talking about. So I've had conversations with numerous production companies, loads of them, like well over 20 with ideas about TV shows. And the majority of the time, they've been, they've been really nice when I've spoken to them. They're very encouraging. I've told them my ideas. Sometimes I've, I've gone out of my way to do like a few hours research to flesh out my ideas, have emailed them over on their request, heard literally nothing back. And it's, it's quite frustrating because, you know, even if... I would be happy with a look for whatever reason. I've put it to the commissioners, but they're not interested in this or they've changed their mind. Sorry, we don't want to work with you. I can 100% appreciate that and understand that because nobody owes me anything. I, I don't think that anybody owes me anything. What is frustrating when it is they don't literally don't reply to you after you've had, this isn't me cold contacting them. This is me after I've sat down with them for several hours. To their defense, when I have spoken to some of them about this, not, not about challenging them directly, but when they've asked me in general about my experience and I've said this, they've explained to me that they also have this hierarchy to pass it up. So they have their bosses who have their bosses who have their bosses who have commissioners who change jobs and change companies all the time and who constantly change their ideas. So everything that they put up, only a very small amount of it trickles back down as an idea that actually sort of um, is, is is made and is brought into production. So I kind of understand that they're not doing it because they're nasty people or they're evil. They don't care about me. They're doing it because my pitch and my conversation is one of maybe 30 that they've had that week and they'll have 30 the next week and the next week. And only a very small percentage of people actually, uh, ideas actually break through and, and become reality. Having said that, I still would argue that there's no need to, uh, to not answer a follow up email. I think that's just basic courtesy. Yeah. Un uncertainty, I think, is a really difficult uh, human emotion to live with, right? I mean, that's one of the hardest things that we all deal with we all want control we all want to know the amount of, i mean i must have pitched to about you know i don't know how many people but about a thousand times over eight years like literally a thousand times i probably pitched things to people emails i sent maybe more than that and very very few ever responded and exactly what you say after having lengthy discussions after going in every day for several weeks to certain production companies and they just don't then you go away you do loads of work for them uh put this whole thing together you send it to them they don't even reply and then they come back to you later like using a different presenter or a different whatever or they don't ever come back to you um and i just think all we need and i guess we've learned from that experience and i would say it's the same for most jobs if you're listening to you know you just, just say to someone really sorry it's not the amount of emails i got back saying hey sorry you know this isn't for us it was only a small percentage of those but they felt good like rejection ends up feeling amazing compared to not because like, oh god they at least emailed back and had the courtesy and they valued me as a human to say no so that's a lesson we've probably learned from that and I suppose just kind of expanding on what we're talking about, the, 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 the risk of this becoming a cycle is this. I'm not saying I'm there yet, but I'm saying that say, for example, say a few years in the future, I have a TV show and some sort of young upstart comes and says, you know, can I be a presenter on your show? There's a risk 
that if it's taken me like a 10,000 emails and a hundred meetings and 20 repeat meetings with the same people and blah, blah, blah. If it's taken me all of that just to kind of get my idea into fruition, there's a risk that when somebody comes along, I'll be like, fuck this guy. I'm not going to help him. Will nobody help me? <laughs> uh, which is a shame. I don't want it to be that way. I'm just saying yeah. I can, I can, I can sort of see, I can understand how the cycle continues. It's like a cycle of abuse, isn't it? Basically, like when we talk about physical abuse going through generations. I would want to, I would want to email that person back and say, yes, I'll help you and come on the show and you can be on my show or whatever it is. But do know that when I had to do it, it was bloody hard and I'm a great guy for letting you do it. Because they won't realize. They'll just be like, wow, that was easy getting, you know, getting onto that thing. And, I, you know, I, uh, I don't know. The whole, the whole thing's mad. Let's move on to, um, uh, you, you've done a video recently on Will Smith's apology. Because Will Smith's apology, I mean, this, this is going to come out next week from when we're talking about it. Will Smith's apology was about a week ago. I don't know, you know, after the Oscars, the slap on Chris Rock. What are your, what are your, I suppose first tell people what his apology was like for those who don't know yet and then and what you think of it. Yeah. So I, I suppose that the reason I made the video, apart from the fact it was a trending topic and I'm desperate for views, <laughs> uh, is, the, is because that uh, I've seen other reaction videos to Will Smith's apology. And I've got to say, I think the vast majority of them are quite unfair. So there's a lot of people talking about how he's such a trained actor that he... Um, you know, he could come across as empathetic, but then that starts as in a weird cycle of how do you know when somebody's telling the truth or not? That's, that's not what this is about. Uh, another reason that he was criticized was because he didn't really go in to explain why he ended up slapping Chris Rock. So to answer your question, I genuinely think it was a very fair, uh, and sincere apology because he didn't just, first of all, he didn't brush it off. He didn't sort of say, you know, I'm sorry you felt that way or I'm sorry, but he went into depth and detail about how many people had hurt. So he'd not just re- talked to, talked about apologizing to Chris Rock, which he did overtly and, and unequivocally, but he talked about how it affected Chris Rock's family members. So he talked about how he used to be really good friends with Tony Rock. And he said that he believes that that relationship's now damaged forever. And that's quite insightful for him to say something like that. He, he felt ashamed that he, he hurt Chris Rock's mother, who also spoke out on another podcast. So to me, that shows somebody who's genuinely thought about it and has not done a knee jerk reaction of thinking, shit, I better apologize because otherwise it'll make me look bad. That's the first thing. The other thing is that as a fan of, of Will Smith, so by a weird coincidence, I actually finished listening to his audio book, uh, his autobiography, literally a couple of days before the Oscar slap. I know that he's quite a sincere person. He's talked very openly in his autobiography about some very embarrassing things that he feels ashamed about. So specifically about how he never stood up to his abusive alcoholic father uh, when he was violent, when, when his father was violent towards his mother and he feels ashamed about that and his family, especially his younger brother who would stand up uh, for, for, for their mother is ashamed and has said to Will Smith many times that he's, he's ashamed of Will. So there's a really personal kind of things that he's opened up with quite honestly. So, and also in some of his YouTube channels, he talks about with quite a lot of emotion, everything from him blowing his money to being massively egotistical and narcissistic and being really immature to when he's young. So the point I'm trying to make is why would somebody who's so open and honest about all those things, who does something that you would be embarrassed about and then apologize for it, why would you assume that they're telling a lie when they have a track record of being quite open about some very shameful and embarrassing things. So I think all of those things in, in combination makes me think that he's being genuine. And as I I said in my video, I think it made sense that he didn't explain his actions because he obviously felt justified for his actions at the time of him doing it. Even if he regretted the moments afterwards, whether it's a day afterward, a week afterward, a month afterward, at that time he felt justified. So him explaining in an apology why he felt justified what he doing, what he, what he was doing while he did it, 
cannot come across as any other way but trying to uh, dissolve some of that responsibility. There's no way that he could he could say that in his apology without kind of taking away from the apology, in my view. Yeah, and I wonder if what you were just saying about um, you know feeling bad that he never stood up for his mother. Do you think that had something to do with the slap itself? Absolutely, absolutely. So I think, and again, so I did, I, when the slap first happened, I made a video about this, and I'm going to go into detail. So I think his the, his reactions, even though they were completely wrong, unequivocally wrong, can be very easily explained by his easy, uh, by his earlier life experiences and i think in some cases that i do for my youtube videos the connection is a bit uh, tenuous but i don't think that in the case of will smith i think it's, it's clear as day so he didn't stand up for his mother there's other women in his life where he felt that he should have defended them and he didn't and he's always had a hang-up about that he's always felt as his as being a bit of a soft persona so to be specific when he made it as a rap star he was mocked by a lot of people because he wasn't gangster he wouldn't swear in his records he, he went against the grain of a lot of other rap that came out of of especially the west coast at that time like you know loads of gangster rap but he stuck to his guns so he was always seen as a i wouldn't say a laughing stock but as a soft option within rap Will Smith don't got a cuss in his raps to, to sell, sell records, records. But well, I, I do, do. So F, him, so F you too. <laughs> that was well, one so of my favourite. I love that song. I know, I wish I know all the lyrics too, by the way. <laughs> I'll um, get you to do that. <laughs> so, so all of that uh, shows somebody who's massively insecure, who feels that very sort of sensitive or even paranoid to being personally attacked and for loved ones, especially women that he's close to being attacked. Plus, and this is crucial, in 2016, Chris Rock made a comment about Jada and Will Smith for the, was it the Golden Globes or the Oscars? I can't, it was Grammy, I think it was Grammys. So the, Will Smith and Jada, both of them made some sort of, they were boycotting it because there wasn't enough black representation. And Chris Rock made some sort of joke saying, Jada Pinkett Smith boycotting the Grammys is the equivalent of me boycotting Rihanna's panties. I wasn't invited. That's how he said it. <laughs> and that was like, that was... I mean, it was a reasonable joke. I think it's quite funny and I can see the humor of it. Yeah, I, can, I, I think it's funny as well. But I can also understand how that could be very offensive towards uh, Will and Jada because that was a political stance they were making and he kind of belittled it. And crucially, he wasn't, it wasn't like Ricky Gervais in the Golden Globes where he was taking the piss out of 20 celebrities and they were part of it. He literally only made that joke about them at that time and nothing else. So I can understand how Will Smith might have taken that um, personally, didn't have the reaction time or the courage to do anything about it at that time held on to that insecurity and was primed to be insulted by Chris Rock so that thing that happened years ago he felt bad once again for not standing up for Jada like he didn't for his mother at that time was ready to be insulted by Chris Rock and then as soon as that joke came out he just snapped not because of, of just what happened at that moment because of all of the history from behind it so I think it's a combination of all those things there's also that moment obviously that people talked about a lot which was that he caught him he was sort of laughing and people are saying like oh see he found it funny but, but I think what might have happened really is he sort of caught himself laughing laughing and thought oh god what am i doing and he's even he's angry at himself then he's angry at everyone and i don't know do you i mean we talked about will smith and i think you know you're you're being a maybe kind talking about him in sort of you know devil's advocate and the same with biden um and i think there probably is a uh, a tendency among people particularly sort of youtube commenters and stuff to go in so hard on everyone especially people who don't agree with their politics but even if it's nothing to do with politics what is that about us that is like the public shaming and wanting to say oh Oh, they did a bad thing so I'm going to analyze every detail and it's and never give the devil's advocate side I honestly I think my answer to that is that it's 
it's a lot easier to get clout and to get attention if you're see if you're appearing to be fighting to some sort of cause. So a video where you say this is this guy's really good, I like his movies and blah blah blah, people are going to get bored of that unless you're a huge YouTuber yourself. No one's going to watch that. But uh, a video where you're criticizing somebody or you're you know calling out or you're being offended on behalf of a bunch of people is going to get sort of you know it's going to get stoked by everybody that's kind of supporting your agenda i think it feels good too doesn't it to sort of i mean we, we've all found ourselves doing it you know you fall out with someone and then you talk to another friend about them and suddenly like all these other things about them come to your mind like and they did this and they're probably a psychopath and all those things when when you never thought that before they did one bad thing you know i, I don't talk about my friends behind their back andrew i didn't, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that about you you'd have to get some friends first <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Shaham Das, for gracing this show once more with your eminence. Hope you all enjoyed that, but if you find yourself wanting a bit more of my handsome friend's pearls of wisdom, check out his YouTube channel, A Psych for Sore Minds, where he chats about the news of the day as well as horrific true crime stories. You can also get your fill of that kind of titillation in his brand spanking new book, Into Minds, Stories of Murder, Justice and Recovery from a Forensic Psychiatrist. If you get hold of it, let him and me know your thoughts. Follow us on Twitter and the like as well. Say hello. Remember to sign up on patreon.com slash andrewgold if you are enjoying this podcast and want to support it. You'll then be able to get ad-free episodes in your Apple or CastBox, uh, whatever you're using, whatever player you use, uh, or just listen to them in the Patreon app. You'll also get bonus episodes there, so do sign up, although we didn't do a bonus episode today with Dr. Shaham because we've done that before. Uh, but thank you also to my newest patrons, those who have signed up. Uh, a person who wanted to be unacknowledged, um, I shan't acknowledge you, uh, but also Kelly S., Sarah Rannan, who it's been a pleasure chatting back and forth with, Kevin B., Louise Richard, and Mark E.L. The way my shout-outs work is that I ask if people are happy with me shouting out their full name after they sign up on Patreon, and if I don't get a reply, I just say their first name followed by their second initial. I think a lot of people sign up and then don't realise they can get messages in the Patreon app so they don't see my message. In any case, I'm absolutely delighted that they were enjoying the podcast enough to want to support it. What a lovely feeling that is. I mean, last week uh, I had the Coffin Confessor on and at the end I read out a one-star review. I've been absolutely knocked for six by the reaction from some of you. So thanks so much for getting in touch, just saying nice things and stuff. I know that feeling where you think, oh, what's the point in messaging? It won't make a difference. But I assure you it did. My girlfriend, now fiancé, I should say, which we're very excited about and uh, we're just celebrating with the in-laws in Croatia as I say this um so this you know still working always working always working even away in bloody croatia uh but yes an, an editor she is as well uh Hooli, will attest to the fact that that one star review i got uh it got to me more than it should have done because it was sandwiched by a couple of two star reviews as well the vast majority are five stars and lovely and nice but you know how it is the bad ones sort of stick sometimes so um, to get those messages of support brightened my entire week or month and kept me invigorated about doing the podcast. Any bad reviews tend to say that I focus too much on woke culture. This is a podcast that usually focuses on myths, magical thinking and ideologies, what can happen when you know good ideas and good thoughts go too far or go wrong. 
Um, and I personally see woke culture as a part of that. I, I really do. But if you look back through the episodes, it's only about one in seven or eight or nine that discuss that woke stuff and the social justice stuff. I try to keep things as mixed as possible. And I think a lot of you enjoy that. I do try to get to the other side um, as well and get those people on, but they keep saying no. I've been in touch with several trans activists, for example, one who is very prominent. And I told her that I won't have her on to debate. I'm not going to debate her. I just want to hear and understand her side better. But because I'd had another trans person, Debbie Hayton, who was gender critical on the show, this trans person, the other, the prominent one who I was trying to speak to, refused to come on. Which I have to respect. Guests have to come willingly onto this show. Anyway, please do keep getting in touch with me if you're enjoying the podcast or have any thoughts. It's a thrill every single time someone does. And please keep reviewing. I love reading them out on here. Uh, Buzz108 in Canada gave five stars and wrote, Another gem! My biggest complaint is that Andrew's guests are too interesting and now after Sarah Ferris, I have another three podcasts to listen to. Too many interesting guests. Totally fantastic. Oh, thank you, Buzz. That was lovely, lovely, really nice to read. Uh, Sarah Ferris was great. She did that stuff about conning the con, her and her sister, con the con man. Um, another was from Valval89, who wrote, you know, five stars in the UK. Uh, love these pods. Came across Andrew's podcast entirely by accident, and now I'm obsessed. His interviews keep me company on the daily, and I love his style and the stimulating conversations he has and questions he raises. Might be daily walk or something. Uh, thanks for making these. I'm terribly sorry because I'm so, so long overdue a review. If you read this, though, I do tell anyone who has ears about your podcast, and I've loved every single one. Can't wait to see you make it to the top. Oh, Val Val, thank you so much. And as I've said before, like, yeah, as you, you know, word of mouth is the best way to spread these. It's just like the best, most natural way. People trust their friends. So thank you so much. Uh, another one is from someone94773. Five stars in the United States who wrote, nice, great podcast. Thank you for keeping me entertained, Andrew. So that's lovely as well. So it's been great. I feel like I've had more five-star reviews since I've read out that one-star review last week. So thank you all so much for your support. There are more lots of nice reviews last week, but I'll read them out next time when my guest is a student suing her university for failing her paper because it didn't agree with the professor's anti-Israel stance. See you then. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.